Um, and it's really been a, a, just a wonderful privilege to work through these Old Testament prophets, and especially coming in now through the halfway point of Daniel, if you can believe it, just in the last couple of months. What a joy to work with the preaching team uh, through Daniel. Well, if you uh, think back on some of what we've learned, I'd, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles now to Daniel as we just take a quick little walk through to look at some of what we've seen, these unmistakable truths that God is supreme and that he accomplishes his purposes. Every chapter in Daniel reveals how the God of heaven is the only true God and he owns everything on earth, including the lives of all people, including the kings who demand loyalty from the people. So I want you to take a look at some of the key verses throughout these first six chapters that we've studied so far that reveal God's absolute supremacy and and humanity's subordination to his sovereign will. Take a look in chapter 1 of Daniel, verse 8, and you'll notice one key verse here, but Daniel set in his heart that he would not defile himself. Well, in chapter 1, we learn that Daniel um, needed to live faithfully to God, despite the indoctrination of the government and the social influence of his evil society, and that message rings loud and clear for us today. In chapter 2, if you'll skip ahead, take a look at verses 20 and 21. This is where Daniel's life is on the line, because if he doesn't correctly interpret the king's dream, his life like so many others, would be over. But God reveals the mystery of the king's dream. And when this happens, Daniel proclaims of the Lord these words in verses 20 and 21. Wisdom and might belong to him. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. God reigns supreme. In chapter 3, go to verse 28. Here, King Nebuchadnezzar himself recognized God's power to save those who live by faith in the worst of times. Uh, He puts people, this king, to the worst of situations, but the one true king of all brings them to really their very best. They could be at the risk of coming to a fiery end in the fiery furnace, and yet God reigns supreme and his purposes will not be thwarted. Take a look at verse 28. The king proclaimed this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and saved his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's word, and gave up their bodies so as not to serve and not to worship any god except their own god. Uh, The king who demands loyalty from servants recognizes that there is only one to whom these servants may be loyal. Well, go ahead to chapter 4, and let's take a look at the sovereign authority of God here. Well, we learn in chapter 4 that King Nebuchadnezzar suffered extreme loss, loss of his sanity, loss of his human ability to reason, and he came to the conclusion that every person is going to confirm one way or another just like him, and it's in verse 17, chapter 4, 17. The Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whom he wishes and sets up over it the lowliest of men, like himself, right? Now take a look at verse 26. Again, it is heaven that rules with power. Go to chapter 5. We considered here the story of King Nebuchadnezzar's son, and we were yet again reminded of the strong hand of God. 
here, the strong hand of God writing on a wall, uh, to weigh the value of human authorities. And verse 21 is critical about this, just as it's really been throughout all of Daniel, but you take a look at verse 21. The most high God is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind, and he set up over it, he sets up over it whomever he wishes. Take a look down in verse 23, and what and verse 23 makes God's rule both inevitable and ubiquitous, because in God's hand are your life breath and all your ways. Well, last week we learned from Daniel chapter 6. And what we learned is that no matter what changes might befall us in terms of life, politics, society, or any sphere of influence, God never changes, and neither should we, right? Well, Daniel prayed, and he continued to pray on his way to the lion's den, in the lion's den, and when he came out of the lion's den. And because God is faithful to keep his promises, the crust of the earth could shift, and it will in the future, but nothing of eternal consequence changes, What are we called to do? To submit to his will in good times and in bad, and out of love for God, and also out of holy fear for him, stay in this state of awesome wonder at his transcendent supremacy. He is the king over all. Uh, And you can go down in Daniel 6, 26, and here's the situation there. Now a new king, Darius the Mede, has come in, and he's also come to realize that no matter what dominion he might hold for a time over the land, God's dominion is greater. It's universal. It's eternal. Look at verse 26. He makes a statewide decree that, quote, men are to fear and be in dread before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be unto the end. He saves and delivers and does signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, these are just some of the many lessons that we've seen so far in our study of the book of Daniel. By the way, if you've missed any of our messages, then be sure to go to our Sojourner's webpage that flashed up a few times at gracechurch.org, and you can catch up this summer uh, before we start in, uh, in in August and in the fall for the second half of Daniel. Now, if there's one major term that I would use to describe God Throughout these six chapters, we talked about supremacy, uh, and we talk about his sovereignty, but I would put it under the title authority. Authority. He's the authority over all, over every king, over every governing ruler, over every decree that they make, over every requirement of their laws, over every society, over every person, and over the earth. He's the king over mankind. And you know this, you're convinced of this from Scripture. There's really no mystery about this fact. God is the supreme authority over all. But it's one thing to read it in a book or to hear it from a pulpit. And it's another thing to actually see the Lord as authoritative in our daily life during our times of trouble. And my concern is that with so much distance from the era of Daniel, and who knows how much time until the future events that Daniel predicted will actually unfold right now, in this church age, we can have a pretty hazy view of what it means to live in God's kingdom under his sovereign authority. And as a consequence, we might not just have a hazy view, but a lazy approach, a lazy approach to acting by his authority as ambassadors 
of his authoritative world anywhere that he would send us. So my burden today is to remind us all, and myself included, of what it means to come under the authority of Daniel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, during this era, during the church age, as we wait for Daniel's long-time prophecies of the return of Messiah to come true. And what we need to understand is that Christ's kingdom is a, in a spiritual form right now. So we're waiting for a future time when he's going to come back. He's going to reign uh, from the earth uh, at Jerusalem. And that means that his reign right now is not that. And we are in this intermediate period after his death and resurrection when he ascended to heaven. And this is really a parenthesis within human history that we call the church age. We're living in this era of Christ's kingdom, but Christ's spiritual kingdom, an invisible kingdom. He reigns with an invisible reign from heaven, but he reigns invisibly, yes, but powerfully. And we need encouragement from his word to keep front and center in our thinking, in our attitudes, in our ethic, in our actions that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns today over everything. So what I want to do is consider the authority of Daniel's Messiah in the church age at this particular phase of redemptive history while we live somewhere between the physical, visible kingdoms, past and future, the times of prophecies made in the past and the time of prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the future. And what I want us to do is hone in on Christ's authority over the church age, his spiritual kingdom. So would you turn with me to the New Testament from Daniel, specifically to Matthew chapter 28, Matthew 28. This passage, Matthew 28, provides us with some of the resurrection accounts of Jesus with his disciples. And what we're going to read is perhaps the most well-known statement of Messiah's authority in the New Testament that we might be thinking of, and it starts in verse 18, Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. It says this, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, it would be pretty easy to just pump out a message that puts the missionary at the center of this passage, because Jesus' words here have to do with the role of the disciple out in the world. And after all, the disciple of Christ that goes to the nations is a missionary. So it would make this a missions passage, and no doubt it definitely is. But it is more than that. It's an authority passage. It's an authority passage. Notice how that authority theme that we've been studying in Daniel really surfaces in verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. From Jesus' own mouth, we hear these unmistakable words, this unmistakable proclamation that Jesus, who is God, holds supreme authority over the world and everything in it. Notice how he declares his authority as comprehensive and absolute. He uses uh, this term, all. But I want to ask you a question. Do you know what the word that's translated as all in your Bible actually means in the Greek? All. Yeah. Jesus is God, so his authority is unlimited. He is transdimensional. He is, what does it say? In heaven and on earth. He is the authority. So all authority has been given to him by his Father. 
Now, at the time that he delivered these words, Jesus had already been resurrected to an eternally glorified life. And that makes this commanding rule as the human king in the line of Adam perfectly limitless in a way that it would not be true for any other Davidic king or Adam himself. This is a universal reign as high as the heavens, that's what it says, which is an incalculable dimension, and as far as the earth extends, which is still impenetrably far today. And because he's risen, and because he possesses a glorious eternal life, he's going to rule as king over all into the future without end. So the reign of this risen Christ will spread without measure in every possible direction in the most effective way with unlimited divine energy forever. Therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ is none other than Daniel's Messiah who even now reigns spiritually and invisibly in the lives of those he calls into his kingdom. So what I want us to do is use Matthew 28, specifically 18 to 20, as a base text for understanding two major points about how Christ exercises his authority in the church age in this spiritual phase of his kingdom. You can see up on your screen the outline for today. The first point is that Messiah delegates his authority to his ambassadors. Uh, The second point is that Messiah uses his authoritative word to establish his rule in the world. In Matthew 16, 18, a little bit earlier, the Lord Jesus Christ emphasized before his death that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So what we see in our passage, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, after his resurrection, is clear instruction to his disciples about what activities he's going to authorize them to carry out as his ambassadors in the world, so that they're going to participate in his work of building his church, laboring as servants of the master builder. Now, there are five passages, actually, that are commonly referred to as the Great Commission, which I've listed for you on the screen there at the bottom. And in these five Great Commission passages, Jesus gives instruction after his resurrection about how he's going to delegate his supreme authority to his ambassadors and how he's going to expand his spiritual kingdom as his ambassadors proclaim his authoritative word across the world. And so those passages are listed there for you, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which we're in, Mark 16, 15 to 20, Luke 24, 46 to 49, John 20, 21, and Acts 1, 8. And we see the two major points about Messiah's authority most clearly when we put the teaching of these five passages together. So from these passages, we learn what it means that Messiah holds total control of the world today. Even though we often don't see how he is acting by his power, it's hard to discern how he is ruling by his might on a day-to-day basis in our world today But we have these passages to give us some indication that he not only is doing it, but how he's doing it. So to structure our study, what I want to do is largely follow the phrases in the Matthew 28 passage, which we just read, so that we can draw out what we need to know about Messiah's authority during the church age. So I'm going to move into our first point now, which expands our slide a little bit, about how Messiah delegates his authority to his ambassadors. Because Christ has unlimited divine authority in heaven and on earth, he alone mandates the mission that his followers are to carry out. Look at the top of verse 19 in your passage. At Jesus' instructions for how the disciples must act on his authority, Jesus commands, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. 
Well, what Jesus commands his followers to do is exactly what he did. He went and he made disciples from the moment he launched his public ministry. Missions, done biblically, reflects the public ministry of Christ, does it not? Preaching and teaching the gospel, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ in a crooked and perverse generation, calling sinners to believe the gospel and serve the Lord Jesus Christ as their king, total loyalty. Well, that kind of disciple-making is the goal of biblical missions, if we want to call it that. Sometimes the word missions doesn't quite go in the biblical direction, so I like to call it biblical missions. Well, what follows in our passage through verse 20 hones in on what disciple-making entails, which we'll deal with more in our second point than in the first. But to our point here, Messiah delegates his authority to his ambassadors by empowering an exclusive mission everywhere. So I've broken this idea of an exclusive mission everywhere into three observations. And the first one that I'd like you to know about how Messiah delegates his authority is that he empowers believers by his presence. He puts his power in his people. Now, if we consider how many faithful believers have died for their faith throughout the centuries, we think about how resistant sinners can be to even hear the truth of Christ today, then we start to understand that doing Great Commission ministry Biblical missions requires that we draw from Christ's inexhaustible power. We simply don't have the spiritual resources to live as lights for Christ by the energy of our own batteries, do we? We can hardly muster up the right emotional fortitude to suffer for Jesus in first world contexts, let alone in truly challenging realities. Is that not true? But gratefully for us, Christ's authority in heaven and on earth is sufficient. It's sufficient, it's powerful to carry us through each day so that we would keep preaching and teaching the gospel. Now, we can bookend this idea with the last phrase in verse 20. So jump to the end of the passage, the last phrase of verse 20, and see the bookend with verse 18 about authority. He states, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus holds all authority in heaven and on earth, right? And because he does, he promises to be present with his disciples, no matter where they go or what troubles they face, right? Well, as believers attempt to make disciples everywhere they go, Christ promises to be with them there wherever they are and always. Because his promises are sure, believers are going to persevere by his power. So I hope you catch the significance of Christ's empowerment for you today. If always really means always, then even in our generation, Christ is with us as we proclaim him to the nations always has no expiration date. Christ's authority is timeless. You know, 2,000 years have nearly passed since he spoke this promise, and he's been no less present, no less powerful, and no less commanding than when he said these words the first time to the first disciples. So isn't it good to know that because Messiah is the supreme authority over all, he'll continue to make good on his promise and actually be with those who represent him? It is to missionaries, should be to us. You know, his promise to empower believers when they proclaim the gospel, that actually adds for us, it in a way brings good news to those who preach good news, so that he's with us. But there is a qualifying statement, and you see that at the end of verse 20. And it doesn't undermine the duration of always, that term, but it does set up a time component to what we're called to do as delegates of his authority. It's the phrase at the end of verse 20, even to the end of the age. Notice what that means. We're very uh, literal with our understanding of literal terms like age here. 
And Christ will continue to build his church until the age in which the church is being built is completed. There will be an end to this spiritual phase of Christ's kingdom. Now, the prophecies of Daniel, particularly in the second half of the book, reveal the events of the Great Tribulation that are going to shake the world to its core and soften the stiff neck of Israel. And the book of Revelation helps us understand the time of this divine wrath being poured out that, that Daniel will call in chapter 12 the times of trouble for Jacob. And uh, this actually happens after the church is removed from the world. But until the, wor- the church is raptured to the clouds, the divine presence and activity of Christ is going to continue to empower believers to make disciples just as it always has. It's always. Now, there's a second observation that I would have you make about how Messiah delegates his authority, and it's that he enables his disciples to carry out his mission everywhere across the earth in every context. He enables his disciples to carry out his mission everywhere across the earth in every context. Now, someone here might wonder if there are any cultural context or social settings where it might not be the best plan to center disciple-making around the preaching and teaching of God's Word. I had to read a lot of those types of theories for my doctorate. Well, could there be valid ways, we might ask, to, to approach the Great Commission that don't require preaching the teach and, and teaching the Bible? Well, think about hostile governments. Uh, that enforce Islam's Sharia law. There was a part of Indonesia that I was allowed to be in in September last year, but not all of it. What about intellectual milieus? I lived in Europe at the start of my ministry. They prefer philosophy to theology. And maybe in certain situations, somebody might think that it's preferable or even advantageous to hide one's faith in Christ rather than openly proclaim Christianity And maybe not hide it so much, but delay delivering the gospel so as to not risk creating offense, right? That we're somehow stiff-arming every time we talk about Christ. But maybe it's extreme situations, not just uncomfortable ones that we should talk about, where we can make disciples a different way, like teaching Muslims how to just start with being more obedient to their own moral laws. You know, there's entire movements on this. Or how about partnering with atheists to, to pursue higher ethics and making policies for school systems, governmental programs? Can you think of any believers that are doing this? Well, there are many missiologists who would approach cultural engagement this way, that would approach political involvement, the, the Christian thing to do to reach the world, but they would not always recommend using Scripture openly in the process of doing these public activities. You often see that it's not quite evangelism, but it's evangelization. Have you ever heard that term, world evangelization? When you hear it, start reading for what they mean. Oftentimes, it is not evangelism preaching the word of Christ. It's being Christian about things that anybody could do. But the Great Commission instructs that Christ's authority is a forever authority, a forever authority for preaching and teaching. And and not only, but it's an everywhere authority. It's an everywhere authority. There's no extreme situation anywhere where God's word should not be opened in the hearing of sinners. There is no extreme situation in the world anywhere where we should not 
open the word of God, or maybe just delay it or hide it for a time for practical purposes. No, you've already seen in Matthew 28, 18, just like you've seen through the book of Daniel, that all authority belongs to Christ on the earth. And that is to say that his reign is everywhere at all times in a spiritual sense now. Now, let's turn to another Great Commission passage, uh, Acts 1.8. It's a great statement that we'll splice into what we're learning here, Acts 1.8. There, Jesus expresses just how far his rule will extend. So we say that it's a, an everywhere rule, an everywhere commission. How does he say it? He says, even to the end of the earth. That's how far his reign is, even to the end of the earth. According to Acts 1.8, because the son's reign is universal, it's on that basis that his followers are going to take up the preaching and teaching ministry with his power. They're going to go out from where they are in Jerusalem at that time. They're going to go beyond Judea, beyond Samaria, and then everywhere else. Where to? To the ends of the earth. And that is, frankly, as far as a follower can go, isn't it? Uh, If you look at another passage. I know, I don't know how many thumbs you have, but I want you in all these passages kind of the whole time. Um, Romans 10. Romans 10, a beloved passage I've been meditating on with a friend lately. Romans 10, verses 13 to 17. And this makes it clear that Christ's authority over salvation is an everywhere authority, an everywhere authority. Listen to the logical chain of Romans 10, 13 to 17. I'll read this in full, or I'll skip a little bit, but Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Does that trigger the parable of the sowers for anyone? And skipping to verse 17, it concludes, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There's no doubt then, is there, that Christ's call to preach and teach from the scriptures constitutes the continuous pattern for all disciples of Christ to do and to pass down as a stewardship to the next generation of disciples. This is how it works. That births the concentric rings of the Great Commission from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Well, the strategies of the earliest disciples are never going to become obsolete, As long as Christ's great commission is in force, we don't need to add new strategies for practical purposes. We need to go to the extreme situations and do the simple work of opening Scripture with people. Now, at this point in our study, we've affirmed that Christ's commission is one of delegated authority. It's binding everywhere that a believer could possibly go, just, I don't know, short of a lion's den, Unless maybe there's people down there that still need the gospel. I don't know how long they would stand, but if so, then they would need the gospel there. But we've also seen how believers are empowered by Christ to act as his ambassadors. So everywhere that they go under his authority, they will do his work by his power and persevere. Now we need to reckon with a term that some believers and missiologists, those who study missions, fall into this problem, they bristle a little bit at this term, and it's the third observation that Christ entrusts an exclusive mission, an exclusive mission. The question missiologists often ask is, how exclusive is Christ's gospel? 
And how exclusive then should be the range of activities that constitute biblical missions? Well, to help answer these questions, we're helped by a couple of other great commission passages, so keep those fingers somewhere. Um, we're going to look at the ending of Mark 16 from verse 9 onward. Now, uh, that's a disputed passage about whether uh, this ending of Mark is original to the text or if it's a later addition. And no matter what side you might take in that debate, I'd like for our purposes today that you consider that Jesus spoke the words in verse 15 and 16. So I'll read those now. He says, "'Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation.'" He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Well, in this passage, Jesus gives the solemn warning that unbelief incurs divine judgment. Missionaries are called to go out there and proclaim life and death as far and wide as they possibly can. And in a similar vein, we have another passage. This is John chapter 20. Uh, This is another great commission passage. John 20, verse 23. John 20, 23 highlights the spiritual seriousness of sending the disciples to new territories. And you see in this passage, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So what does this to mean? Well, missionaries are sent by the Lord of the harvest to deal powerfully with sin either by forgiving those who repent or by condemning those who do not, who will await the great white throne for the judgment that keeps the list of all the deeds, including the denials of the gospel. Now, by repentance and belief, the sinner will come to possess what the same passage in verse 31 says is life in his name, life in his name. But to the contrary, unbelief signals the retention of sins that only stores up for final condemnation. You know, unless those sins are confessed by grace through faith, then they're going to lead the sinner to a final condemnation. This is the gospel that we preach. We preach the beauty of Christ, but we preach preach the ugliness of sin that leads to the, the, the torments of hell, which is a terrifying idea, but it is real. So believers are commanded by Jesus to proclaim life and death as they go about evangelizing. They're not allowed to shirk that responsibility to, uh, uh, except to set the sinner before that horrific contrast of heaven or hell. The good news is also a solace to the, the one proclaiming the message because anyone who believes that message is going to be saved from their sins. But of course, the opposite is always true as well. And it's that those who don't believe continue to fill up the measure of their sin and will suffer in the end the most terrible wrath. So according to what we've just seen, Mark 16, 15 and 16, and John 20, 23, Christ gives power to his disciples so that they will proclaim God's wrath upon sinners, and they'll proclaim eternal life as the reward for those who become his disciples. Now, although there are many ways that the Great Commission task of preaching and teaching could be conducted, uh, depending on the context, the situation, the audience, The undeniable reality is that to proclaim the gospel is to pronounce this exclusive message. It's a message that belongs to Christ, and he allows us to deliver to the hearer. And one implication of this exclusive gospel from the negative, then, is just that, that preaching and teaching is not obedient to the Great Commission unless it's grounded on the fact that Christ alone is, according to John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. 
How many people come to the Father except through him? None. No one comes to the Father but through him. Well, for us believers, the the gospel is beautiful. It's so beautiful to behold. But for non-believers, the gospel is a hard message to hear. We might say that it can fall on deaf ears, but it's, it's not quite that. Romans 1.16 asserts that Scripture is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's the gospel. And 1 Corinthians 1.18 makes the contrast very clear. It doesn't fall on deaf ears simply because they didn't understand what we were saying if we've worked hard to make sure that what we say is understandable. But 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So it's no easy task to be faithful to proclaim a difficult message, that difficult message that sinners deserve wrath. But it should be pretty easy to proclaim that God forgives sinners who repent. So why don't we do that more often too? Well, some of what makes the gospel and proclaiming it particularly challenging for us is that we, we can grieve over the sins of the people that we're trying to reach. Sometimes when we're confronting sin, especially in people that we love, it can be uncomfortable, it can lead to animosity, strife. It can lead to a break in a relationship. It can lead to open hostility and danger. We always said we could tell a true believer out of Roman Catholicism in Italy the first time that he or she was slapped by their own parent. Well, those are difficult situations. It was also a mark of, an obvious mark of conversion. And in those difficult situations, what do we do? We return to the many biblical accounts where Christ provided his power in the moment of preaching and gave confidence to the preacher and gave confidence that it was not the word of man, but the word of God that was being preached. And then they accepted it. Can you think of a passage that says that very thing? It's the story of when Paul and his companions approached a pagan audience in Thessalonica. It's in 1 Thessalonians 1.5 that I'll read here. This account says that the missionary's gospel came to this pagan audience not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full assurance. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.5. Now, according to that passage, the Holy Spirit caused the missionaries, as they were preaching, to grow in that total conviction that they were pronouncing the very oracles of God. And that confidence further emboldened them to continue proclaiming the gospel to their audience. And from the audience's perspective, we read a little later in the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, just what we've already said, that, that those who God called into his kingdom accepted the gospel. They received the gospel when it was preached to them. And they did so because they approved of the truths being proclaimed as coming from God, not from man. So you see that the sinners in the story were spiritually blinded to the truth, hostile to the truth, but in the moment that Christ was preached, they understood the gospel. This was this otherworldly divine power of God, and it was poured out for their salvation, and now Christ was beautiful to them. So it's, it's good to look to the New Testament stories when we're trying to be uh, challenging ourselves to preach and teach, proclaim, witness more faithfully. The Lord's powerful presence brings us comfort and confidence. And he's always done that for his witnesses who engage in a proclamation ministry, in biblical missions for the sake of making disciples, according to his will. 
Isn't it wonderful to think that perhaps the person that's hostile in that moment is going to become your brother or sister in the family of God? Wouldn't it be wonderful to know that as you're preaching the message that you are being faithful to do, the Holy Spirit is preaching right to their heart, hitting the bullseye and converting the soul? That's what we want to see him do. What a humbling reality that he would allow us to partner in that. That after all, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ brought by a human ambassador, a proclaimer. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit hits bullseye, regeneration, entrance into the family of God. (laughs) Incredible. Now, there's a second major point about how Daniel's Messiah exerts his authority during the church age when it might not be easy to perceive that he really is building his kingdom. We've seen how Messiah, the risen Christ, not only holds all authority over heaven and earth, but he delegates it to his ambassadors, giving them the power of his presence so that everywhere they go, they're going to bring that exclusive truth of the gospel to bear on their audience. Now, here's a second slide here. That The second major point today is that Messiah uses his authoritative word to establish his rule in the world. What I want to do here is really dig deeper into some of the features we've already been running across in these Great Commission passages regarding making disciples, some of the things that I'm already talking about now. And there's a lot of material that could be covered, of course, and covered very technically. Um, And for sure, a lot of that is going to have to wait for a more missions-y kind of talk. But what the goal is for us is to understand how every part of the Great Commission requires that Christ and Christ alone be the supreme authority over everything. There is no component of what we call biblical missions that relies on human ingenuity, that relies on man-made strategy in order to find success in God's eyes. So let me say it another way. Biblical missions was established by Daniel's Messiah, who holds universal authority as the king of kings. And he sends out his kingdom citizens out into the world to do his bidding, not their own, his way, not theirs. Now that's delegated authority that Messiah's ambassadors have. And it it would be a total fail if they went out into the world, they bore his name, but they, they started making up their own strategies or their own messages or bits and pieces and came up with their own truths. But sadly, a lot of evangelists, missionaries, and well-intentioned brothers and sisters in the faith go out every day in the name of Jesus and just wing it. They just pick and choose which activities to get involved in, the ones that interest them, what audience seems like the best fit for what they're trying to accomplish, and what truths seem best to teach and which they would rather withhold, at least for a time. It's, It's as if the churches are teaching them that God values entrepreneurship. Not just tenacity, not just ambition, but a vision for how to reach success and and leadership strategy that is creative and will lead us to the right game plan. But there's only one game plan because there's only one king, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ and no other. And so we're called to follow his great commission, not create it. Now, sorry if that doesn't sound avant-garde, but it shouldn't be. Now, the true way to tell whether Christ has bestowed his authority on a missionary is when the missionary sticks to the script, when the missionary actually fulfills the commands that he's given or that she's given. 
there's a whole lot of flexibility in how to fulfill the commands, and flexibility is essential. And God gives wisdom for the situation, but we're not flexible on the commands. And so I'm confident that if you find a missionary doing what is commanded by the Great Commission, then you can be sure that Christ is building his church through that ministry, even though the ministry and the minister are totally imperfect. Now, let's expand. I think you have it here. Messiah uses his authoritative word to establish his rule in the world. Now, as you start back on Matthew 28, let's go back to verse 19, specifically looking at that term, make disciples. Make disciples is that big command that we need to understand. It's disciples are followers of Christ, right? Not just some amorphous, nondescript kind of Christ follower, as a lot of people in missions tend to use as a new buzz term. I'm a Christ follower, not a disciple. Well, no, disciples are followers of Christ's word. They're not making it up. Christ makes disciples by his word, and the Great Commission bears it out. Grammatically, in verse 19 in your passage, the term make disciples is just one word. It's one verb, and it's the main verb of the passage. That means that it's the main command that Jesus leaves for his followers to obey. Now, making a disciple is different than making a convert. So let's be clear on this. The distinction is an important one between disciple and convert. Why? Because the conversion of the sinner is only the beginning of spiritual life. Becoming a convert is like stepping through a doorway but not entering into the room. Okay? Becoming a disciple is different. It has a different goal and experiences a different reality. The goal of a disciple is for the convert to pursue becoming like Christ, to become more conformed with each step of faith to the image of God's Son, and that draws further in to life in the presence of God. The goal of the disciple is to be continually transformed, to look more like Christ more and more throughout life as it goes on. A great passage for this distinction is 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 to 17. I'd encourage you to turn there. Don't know how many fingers are left. 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. This is a helpful passage for understanding that discipleship displays submission of one's total life to Christ. According to 2 Timothy 3, 15, to the convert, the writings of Scripture have made him, as it says, wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. But as the convert becomes more sanctified, draws further into the room of Christ, as it were, the words of Scripture become beneficial in a continually life-giving way that has never been experienced before. And so verses 16 and 17, we read how God's word is beneficial in this way, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as the convert comes to know and live by God's word, he or she begins living as a disciple. A disciple obeys Christ. It serves the body excellently, showing in the mind, in the heart, in the voice, in the hands, in the feet that he is their one and only king and his children are precious to them. Well, a disciple's authority is singularly Christ and and that's what you see borne out in Romans 6.12. It's, Romans 6.12 gives a gut punch of a reminder. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And further down in verse 14, it says, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. 
You see, disciple-making takes a lifetime from the standpoint of sanctification, but a convert becomes a disciple when he or she pursues living like Christ according to the biblical testimony, and the slavery is now transitioned from that kingdom of darkness of Satan, the God of this world, that powerful spirit of the air that has controlled the person, and now is transferred over to that kingdom of God's son, that kingdom of light, and now they operate like that, except sin is still in the life, and now there's always that choice of who's going to reign in the heart. But for us, if we understand the centrality of God's word in conforming us to a pattern of righteous obedience to the king, then when we look at the Great Commission task of disciple-making, we should see it as a glorious privilege rather than some inconvenient chore that we're just commanded to do for the sake of other people. In fact, the mere thought that God would use any of us, I've said this before, but to, to proclaim his excellencies and participate in a sinner having a transferred allegiance and now a delegated authority to then go out and proclaim the excellencies of Christ himself or herself, denying themselves, taking up their cross, continually eradicating sin in their lives. Well, I mean, what a humbling thought that is. causes us to thank God so much. You know, the idea of actually exerting that kingly authority in such a way that could have actual eternal consequences. That's jaw-dropping. Paul captures that in 2 Corinthians 2.16. He captures the wonder of serving um, the Lord for such a purpose as this. He says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, to bring the sweet perfume of Christ to those that are being saved. But also, as we talked about the, the condemning side, to bring the stench of death to those who are perishing. See, that one gospel can have those effects. And so he frames his wonder in a question at the end of that, that, that thought that we should be asking ourselves as we consider the prospect of being used by Christ more to speak in the gospel, to speak the gospel in such a way that sinners would enter into the kingdom. And it's that question, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to do all of this? Well, the answer, of course, is Christ and Christ alone. And therefore, Christ in us, the king who lives within the emissary. We're ambassadors with this delegated authority to take God's word and bring the perfume of life or the stench of death. We're not adequate for it, but we thank the Lord that he gives us his sufficient word, which actually is authoritative for every good. Now, let's go back to our core passage, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And you're going to find three supporting terms. They're all participles that hang on the main command, which we know, that main verb that drives it all, to make disciples. And uh, these participles clarify how to do that in obedience to Christ. You don't necessarily see them all as participles, a gerund, I-N-G type of ending. But it says we make disciples by going. This is in the Greek, by baptizing and by teaching. Now, many scholars agree that when you look at that second and third participle, baptizing and teaching... They're paired together to to really bring out the force that uh, the disciple fulfills the commission of making more disciples by baptizing believers and by training them up in the doctrines of Scripture. And what's unmistakable is that we're commanded to prioritize this preaching and teaching of the Word above all other activities. And I've been saying that throughout the message, that the real work of biblical missions is proclamation. It's preaching and teaching God's Word. And this is where we really see that borne out. 
And so you can see in the outline of, um, that we have even up here on the screen that the Christ uses his word to make disciples. He uses his word to make disciples. And as disciples mature, they develop themselves a burden for other lost souls. Some of them desire to reach souls very far away from them. Maybe at home it's more family and friends and neighbors. Maybe back home it's extended family that leads into an entire new population, that which for them was the old world, now is a very new and vibrant world, brimming with sinners that need Christ. There are language groups, there are people groups that are, that are foreign to us. And so this first Greek participle, going, is best translated as the command that you probably see in your translation, go. And it fleshes out how you start making disciples. Christ commands his disciples to go, where? To all the nations. The entire world is the sphere of his mission. He's not limited in where he's going to send his ambassadors. He sends his disciples to the nations by his word, and that's the second point up here. That's the second way the Messiah uses his authoritative word to establish his rule in the world. There's another Great Commission passage that you've been at a different verse, but John 20, again, you still have that pinky there? John 20, verse 21, adds the idea not of the going in Matthew, but the idea of sending. He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. That's verse 21. And so wherever they go in response to being sent, the instruction is to do what we saw in verse 23, meet out forgiveness and judgment. That's where he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, here comes in the other great commission passage that's helpful, and it's Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 47. Luke 24, 47, Jesus commands his disciples to testify of the gospel first in Jerusalem and then move outward to all the nations. That's that concentric uh, rings going out. So the command to go, you also have seen that in a general sense in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where the gospel witness moved out as if in those concentric rings to the farthest reaches of the Gentile world from where they are in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I guess the question could rightly be asked, but how far out should the word go? Well, according to Paul in Romans 15, he gives a pretty great answer. Romans 15, 20 to 21, the gospel should always be aiming at places, and he says it this way, where Christ is not already named. Where Christ is not already named. Now, that's where a pioneering work is still needed. The foundation of the gospel has not yet been laid. There are still many such places like that around the world today that have never even heard the name of Jesus. Or if they have, maybe they only heard it as a curse word in a movie. It's true. But the book of Acts records how those farthest nations were the target of gospel spread. Very quickly after witnessing in Jerusalem, Acts 1 through 7, the disciples moved outward into Judea and Samaria. Any guess why they would do that? They were commanded to do so, chapters 8 and 9. And then they go to the ends of the earth, chapter 10, all the way to the end, chapter 28. And they experience in those Gentile nations a series of culture shifts. They move from a heavily Jewish context in the first half of the book to a range of Gentile environments in the second half. And that sending leads to the going where there are nations, where there are ethnicities, where there are ethno-linguistic groups, as you might say. But the world is populated now by nations and ethnicities in our own city. 
We're populated by foreign nations and ethnicities that make anywhere we go truly um, uh, some aspect of foreignness, the foreignness that can be part of the going and the sending. You don't actually need to enter into a new time zone to proclaim the gospel, and you know that. You could probably find a neighbor who's come from a foreign nation. And what you might find then is the opportunity to participate in this inherently foreign task of discipling the nations right on your own block. Can you think of anyone in your mind right now? Well, as Messiah's ambassadors, we should also want to reach the nations by going. Uh, Virtual church is not on the short list of what God would allow these days. Um, Internet spread of the gospel is great, but somebody needs to be there to help them with a church plant. So we send out missionaries. We send out short-term ministry teams that support them. No matter where you find foreignness, though, you have the opportunity and the command to go to the nations and make disciples. So no matter where you are, as the Lord leads, you preach and you teach God's word with that firm trust that Christ himself is going to raise up new disciples from among the nations and that he's going to empower you to be a participant in that. Now, there's a third point up on your screen about how Messiah rules in his spiritual kingdom now, and we see that in the second participle. Oh, I said that the South African way. Um, I had taught participles in South Africa, and I'd forgotten that you'd just say participle. Participle. In Matthew 28, 19, what is it? Baptizing. Baptizing. You learn that Christ instructs his disciples to be baptized and that they must baptize new disciples. It's this ongoing work. Well, the practice of baptism, we won't have an opportunity to get much into it, but it's the New Testament practice of full immersion in water of, uh, of a person. Uh, Jesus commands water baptism within the context of the already established practice in the Jordan River that John the Baptist modeled when he was in his preaching ministry. Now, after the resurrection, the early church continued on with this full immersion water baptism practice. It was a standard activity of new converts. Those who were in their teen years or their adulthood, they had individually and unmistakably placed their faith in Christ. Great. Baptism. Now, in the Great Commission, you could go back to the Mark 16 passage, uh, Mark 16, 16, and it says that the act of being baptized comes after a person believes in the gospel. So we see it there as well. Water baptism isn't for salvation, but it does serve as a public testimony of saving grace that has been accomplished already by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So baptism in the biblical mindset, so what we would say is part of biblical missions, is it's an initiatory step. It's a first step that a convert takes as he or she sets out to be a disciple of Christ in through the door of regeneration and into the waters of baptism. That's how it was done. Uh, And then there's reason for delaying that for a testing period to really ascertain the faith of that individual. But the point is that it is a believer's baptism, and it's individual, and it comes from the heart. And when that belief is ready, uh, it's, it's made by the Lord in the heart, and a clear testimony can be given. Now you share it as the light to the world that you are. So... Water baptism is a command, and so it's, that's the more missions-y side of it. I understand that. But what does it do? It reflects a, a basic level understanding of the triunity of God, of God's word and theology. You see, Matthew 28, 19 references what? For baptism, it says, baptize them in the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three names, not three gods, one name, three persons. You see Trinitarianism 
in what the missionary is to go out and do? Do you see Trinitarianism in the act that the, the disciple must undertake to proclaim to the world? Why would that be limited by culture or situation, no matter how extreme? The disciple has to commit to the triune God. There's no other God that you can worship as a Christian. There's no hybridization of a, a tribal idea or a family origin belief and Christ. There's the triune God and no other. There's no other concept or identification of God that is acceptable. You may not have God the Father as a Jewish person without the Son and call him God the Father. It's an idolatrous representation, and it is a lie. It's Trinity or bust, okay? So when you're identified with the death, burial, and resurrection and the glorified life of the Son of God, you present that to the world in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you see how Messiah's authority comes out even in that public display, even in the symbol? Because what it shows is core belief that cannot be changed. That's an exclusive gospel um, born as a witness to the world. Well, baptizing is this physical act, but it is that representation of spiritual fellowship which is real. And it is a new step that one takes, and they might not have all the theology down, but it goes without saying that when a believer goes to the nations to encourage belief and sees converts ready to be discipled, they better know what they're talking about. A missionary better understand theology, better have read the Bible. Uh, You laugh, but it's a reality that many people go with good heart heart of gold and, um, and, and, and no Bible in the back pocket. It goes without saying then that the believer who goes to the nations has to go well prepared because you're not just evangelizing and you're not just baptizing, you're teaching. You're teaching. You're deepening that theology from what, that, what happens at that initial phase to what turns into a life-giving heart of obedience turned into practice for the body of Christ for the concentric work of the Great Commission outward. So Christ, in his word, leads disciples, this is the fourth point, to teach his word. And so that's the fourth way that Christ rules in the church age through his word. He leads disciples to teach new disciples. Now, missionaries, and particularly men in this situation, in accordance with sound practice that we would understand where men exercise authority by teaching the church and preaching to the flock. Well, missionaries, in the sense, take up this regular uh, unending task of teaching disciples to continually submit their lives to the authority of Messiah. And you see that here in verse 20 of Matthew 28. So this is that last part that we'll look at with the Great Commission here, Matthew 28, 20. Christ explains the task as teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. Well, teaching really epitomizes this transference of authority from Christ to his disciples and then his disciples to the new believers so that they might become disciples. And now what we have is a stewardship. We, we pass down the, the faith that has been given to us by the apostles and the prophets on the basis of the teaching of Christ. He's commanded, we command. That's the content. So what is the content? What's the content first called in Luke 24, 48, another one of these passages. Luke 24, 48, 
He, he calls the disciples their witnesses. Witnesses. Witnesses of what? Well, it says these things. Witnesses of these things. Well, Luke 24, 48, these things is really the same as Matthew 28, 20's all that. All that I have commanded you. So we're called to witness everywhere in every context, regardless of how extreme it is, regardless of your life on the line, you are to bring the very topics that Christ brought to his disciples. There's one scholar that listed them this way, Jesus' life and ministry. You're going to hold that back from people? You're going to give it. What about his death and resurrection? That's another topic. What are some of the other things? His vindication over sin, his exaltation, and his ascension. The necessity of conversion and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How about just the gospel of grace, cutting through all the religiosity and, uh, and all of the legalism? How about the kingdom of God so they know what's coming and in whom they find their authority? Well, disciples go out as witnesses, but they better believe what they preach first. They better adhere to those teachings by practicing the truth themselves. They need to be qualified to go. They need to be found qualified so that when they teach others, they produce qualified men and women, those who are maturing in the faith. So that's the connection between teaching and making disciples. And that's why Paul, when he goes out and he makes it his ambition, he says in Romans 15, 20 that we read, make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. What is he hoping to do? He's hoping to lay that foundation. He better know what he's talking about. Now, is missions really just about cultural exchange? We see a lot of this in you know, the travel, the language learning, the excitement, the adventure, all of that. Well, sure, it involves that because you've got to get to where the people are. And you have to be able to speak to them, but you have to lay that foundation. What is the foundation? It's obedience to Messiah, to Daniel's Messiah. You see, Daniel is the one who, who, who told us what we know from the rest of Scripture, that, that Christ is going to crush all the kingdoms. Christ is going to shake the nations. Christ reigns now from heaven. Christ holds all authority on the earth. So what are we after? in the nations. Some adventure? We're after obedience to Messiah. Obedience. It's a delegated authority to command obedience everywhere. Because like Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17, one day soon, this Messiah will come back to judge everyone. He's going to return to judge anyone who will not be taught this truth. He's going to condemn everyone who will not bow their heart. And then when it's all said and done, He's going to rule from Jerusalem on the basis of his holy word. And he's going to usher in the world peace and the righteousness that everyone talks about wanting, but he's going to do it with righteous worship. And at that point, it's with every tongue and every tribe and every people and every nation. He will get what he's after. So what's the end game of the Great Commission? Just some information on what to do when we feel like doing it? No. This is... Daniel's end game, that after the end of the church age, even after the great tribulation, when Jesus returns to the earth, we see Messiah take his world domination. And we, he will realize it and we will celebrate it. He will crush the last wicked kingdom to dust. That's the end game of the Great Commission. When Messiah takes his seat on that Davidic throne in the millennial temple, and all praise goes to him because all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. 
But there's more. There's a further end game, isn't there? And it comes into view after the millennium. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, and we'll end with this idea. He says, then comes the end when he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. And that's when we will truly celebrate the success of Christ's great commission. When believers from the church age join the Old Testament saints, join the tribulation saints, join the disciples that are made during that thousand years of Christ's millennial reign. And at that time, when all things are consumed and we begin the final phase of our existence on a new earth with a new heaven, then every end game of all time will be realized. And that turns into a prayer that we can start singing now, recognizing what's coming. It fills our hearts with desire to live as his delegated authority here right now, everywhere that we possibly can. It's Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Read this with me. These are the lyrics to a future song that we will sing with all the redeemed redeemed in Messiah, and we can sing it even now. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Jesus invites us now to serve as his ambassadors on the earth, but not only in this age, in the age to come as worship leaders for all eternity, from all the nations where Christ will be praised from every heart and every mouth. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the praise and the worship now and forevermore for Daniel's Messiah. He reigns in our hearts. He rules in his church. And one day he will receive the praise of every person on the earth. I close in prayer with 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.